Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Hello, and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am your host, Alberto Ligi. I'm normally based in London, but today I find myself in Holland in the middle of a forest with very patchy internet connection, but we'll try to do the best we can. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire global listeners to be more philanthropic, act more sustainably, and embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick things off, if you are able to subscribe to the podcast by pressing that little button on your iPhone or Android device, that would be absolutely wonderful. And today it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Jessie Rasmussen to the podcast. She is the president of the Buffett Early Childhood Fund, and she's someone I met a little bit over three years ago at the World Bank uh, Foundation's Advisory Council in D.C., and we've had uh, a couple of conversations since then to exchange notes and, and brainstorm a bit, and we were originally introduced by a mutual acquaintance named Joan Lombardi, who someday might be on this podcast as well who is um, an expert in early childhood development, early childhood education. Uh, but Jesse is someone who is um, a, a fountain of knowledge in the foundation space and also in the early childhood development and early childhood education space. Um, it's an area that is very close to my heart and in the philanthropy space and development and sustainability and early childhood really does matter. Uh, so Jesse, uh, first of all, a, a big warm welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Great. Are you in Nebraska? Just to double check, you're in Nebraska today? Yes, I am. Omaha, Nebraska. Wonderful. So tell me um, a little bit about your story. How did you get to run the Buffett Early Childhood Fund, uh, your career trajectory, in case anybody's interested in emulating your success? And, uh, and tell us a little bit about the, uh, the fund itself. Uh, many people would recognize Buffett as the name, but they may not recognize the organization. And so would love to hear a little bit about that as well. Great. Well, I have been actually in the field in some way, shape, or form of early childhood for actually over 50 years. Um, my undergraduate degree was from the University of Nebraska in child development. My first job out of college was in a Head Start program for children with special needs. For the next probably 15 to 20 years, I'm a practitioner in the world of early childhood in various settings. I ran um, programs. I was uh, executive director of several programs in Nebraska. And somewhere along the line, I also became involved in advocacy, realizing the disparities um, in our country for children, particularly those that are facing the greatest odds in life. So that advocacy work actually led me to run for the state legislature in Nebraska, and I served as a state senator for four years and then worked for then-Governor Nelson, heading up his children and family department. Eventually came the honor um, of the Health and Human Services Agency in Nebraska, did that for several years, and then went to Iowa when there was a change in governors and worked for Governor Vilsack for four years, running the uh, Human Services Department there. When I came back to Nebraska, I was funded by the Buffett Early Childhood Fund at another organization to lead an effort to establish a $60 million public-private endowment that would, would generate funds to serve children under the age of three who were facing the greatest odds in life. So 
once we were successful in doing that, I was then invited to come work for the Buffett Early Childhood Fund. So I should say, people ask me, when did you know you wanted to work for a philanthropy? I didn't know I would be working for a philanthropy, didn't think about working for a philanthropy. It was an opportunity that came at the right time in my national journey. I was able to bring my experience as a practitioner, as well as a legislator and as a state administrator, a big um, end of career opportunity for me to now use those experiences and my understandings from those experiences to make smart investments in early childhood and the Buffett Early Childhood Fund, as you indicated, was um, a step, well, actually, uh, in 1999, somewhere between 99 and 2000, Warren Buffett decided to um, give a substantial amount of his Berkshire Hathaway stock um, to his three children, as well as to the Gates Foundation. So at that time, um, Sue, when she first received this, she had a close relationship with the superintendent of the public schools here in Omaha. And she went to him and said, how can I help the kids um, that are struggling to be successful, believing that education can be the great leveler? And that superintendent was so visionary. He said to her, don't give us the money. Go figure out how to give these children a great start in the first five years of their life. So they don't show up at our schools one to two years behind. He said, can we play catch up? Yes, we can. But it's time intensive, resource intensive, and far too often we deal. So at that point is how why Susie got interested in early childhood, because she really saw it. Just to interrupt, Susie is Susan Buffett, so it's, it's Warren's daughter. Yes. Okay, just to give context to everybody who doesn't know who Susie is. Yes. Right. I'm sorry. I forget that everybody doesn't know that. So yes, Susie is one of three children, right. and she decided to focus. Uh, originally, she had a strong focus on early childhood. So fast forward, she began to learn about um, early childhood. It was about the time shortly after the um, brain research came out. Um, so she had that to learn. She also, her mother uh, was friends with a philanthropist in Chicago, Irving Harris, who was a visionary who had seen the research, understood the science, and was the inspiration for the creation of the ounce of prevention mm -hmm. in Chicago which today is uh, a statewide resource, but the ounce then under the direction, well, the leadership, she wasn't the executive director, but the, we call her the birth mother. She created the Educare model, which right. was a, a model of quality early childhood birth to five. Um, and that was something that was relatively new then was to really think not just about three and four year olds, but about infants and toddlers. And a lot of that was driven by what the brain science was telling us, as well as the language research and the attachment research. So anyway, she went to Chicago. She talked to Irving Harris. She saw their brand new Educare school. And she said, this is what I want to do in Omaha. And honestly, what she intended to do was come back to Omaha and replicate two schools in Omaha in two communities of poverty. But what happened was her brother said, I think you're onto something. I want to do one of these schools. And then George Kaiser from Tulsa, Oklahoma called and he said, I've been seeing the research. I want to have an impact in this way. I want to join your network. And people kind of went, network? We didn't know we had a network. Mm -hmm. So uh, realized, though, there was a kind of a hunger out there 
to collectively work together to demonstrate what quality early childhood could do for children uh, dealing with multiple risk factors. So about somewhere between 2004 and 2005, Susie established the Buffett Early Childhood Fund as a separate 501c3, separate from her foundation, which is known as the Sherwood Foundation. Mm -hmm. And then she gives a designated amount of stock to the Buffett Early Childhood Fund every year to make our investments. So that's kind of a long ways from where I started to uh, a bit of how we got started at the Buffett Early Childhood Fund. That sounds fascinating. And tell me, so you focus in terms of your the, the age bracket that you're targeting, is this the, the first thousand days? Is it zero to five? Is it prenatal to eight? What's the age bracket that you're usually looking at in terms of your interventions? Most of our focus, uh, at least originally, was very much on birth to five. Mm-hmm. And um, across the years, uh, we have expanded that to be more of a birth to eight definition, as well as um, while we don't get into a lot of the prenatal care and health care, we certainly make those connections for the ch- children of families that are served, particularly through the educator schools, but through other programs too. So we we have ended up, um, we invest in three key areas. Okay. Practice, early childhood practice, and our biggest investment there is the educator learning network which now has, by the end of this year, we'll have 25 operating schools in 14 states plus D.C. and the Winnebago Nation in Nebraska. And um, that's our major practice investment, but we do have other ones too. But we also invest in policy, believing policy both at the state and federal level is how we're actually going to get to all of the children and families. And so we, along with several other philanthropists, and that was that's a common theme about how we do our work. We do it almost always in partnership with others. Mm-hmm. So it, with other funders, we helped establish the Alliance for Early Success, which is a state-based uh, focus on policy. And it receives funding from multiple funders, and then it re-grants those funds to state advocacy groups, as well as national organizations that will help state advocacy groups to promote smart investments by the state in early childhood birth through eight. And then we, uh, again, along with many of the same partners, help create a federal um, organization, the First Five Years Fund, and it focuses on federal education, federal policy, and communication. Um, so, so practice and then policy, and then we invest in research or knowledge development. And some of our earliest ones, and still today, were with people like Dr. Jack Shonkoff at the Center mm-hmm. for the Developing Child at Harvard. A lot of the translation of brain science to influence policy and practice. And then um, we also have been a long investor in Dr. James Heckman's work. He's the economist that has done a lot of the return on the investment studies. But we also uh, fund a, a national evaluation of the Educare Network. And evaluation and, and really research is built into almost every grant that we do. But we invest in all three areas, believing you have to have all three to get to our ultimate goal that, that every child uh, in the first, in the earliest years and months of their lives have the opportunity to access effective quality services. And it's the interaction between those investments um, that make a difference. So if I can give you an example there. Sure. So in Omaha, we use the Educare 
as a showcase. We bring policymakers in so they can see what a quality birth to five program looks like. Most policymakers are going to have an idea of what a three and four year old might be learning, but they can't quite envision what a infant or a toddler is learning until they can see and have it demonstrated to them. And we take the research from the local uh, program and share it with the legislators and so they can see that it works, that we are closing the gap and that it does last into mm-hmm. uh, elementary school. So we use the Educare practice investments to inform policy at the state level. It was instrumental in getting the endowment passed to serve children, infants and toddlers, children under three. And because they realized it was important, but a big part of that success was also bringing in Jack Shonkoff and James Heckman to talk to the policymakers so that they could hear what the research was saying. So it isn't just about parallel investments in these three areas. It's really figuring out how they are interconnected in order to achieve our greater goals. Are you feeling optimistic about the uh, direction of travel in terms of uh, the importance communities and societies placing in early childhood, in terms of policy, in terms of uh, the actual programs that exist for families? Are you feeling optimistic about things or maybe not so much? Most days I'm optimistic. Uh, And I think I'll tell you why. And that is because uh, the polling, both at the state level and the federal level, on both sides of the political aisles, it polls consistently in terms of strong support for investing in the early years. So that is good. I think more, I think we're kind of over the hump in terms of people understanding the importance of the early years. I'm not saying they fully understand it, but it's progress. But what we haven't been totally successful, particularly at the federal level, is changing or transferring how you respond on a poll into action in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. And where I'm not as optimistic is not fully um, having the sense of urgency that we need to invest now or else we lose children uh, along the way. So what I'm encouraged by uh, is that more and more states are making significant investments, particularly in three and four year olds. We still have a ways to go. There's probably only a handful of states in the United States that are investing Uh, in birth to three. And so I think that that's um, still an area of growth that we need to have. The other thing I'm encouraged by is there's a lot of media stories, even political conversations about childcare and access to quality childcare, affordable quality childcare. And that's an issue that's hitting particularly hard right now, I think, because Every business, every industry is facing a workforce crisis. They can't get enough good people working. Unemployment is really low. And so um, we're all competing um, for um, workers, for staff. And so it becomes even more important because that we pay attention to this issue of parents having access to affordable quality child care. Because otherwise, women are starting to leave the workforce again, women in particular. So I think there, there are several, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think there are several dynamics that are playing that give me uh, hope that um, we're actually going to be able to move things. What I'd love to see is less incremental and more bold, significant investments and maybe 
it's because I've been at this for so long, I'm getting impatient. But um, I would like to see uh, a major investment. And let me just say one more thing here is that the uh, Institute of Medicine um, commissioned a study on the financing of early childhood in the United States. And we now have a good set of recommendations. Uh, we can quibble about some of the details of the report, but basically it is saying what it's going to take to truly put a quality early childhood system in place. And uh, so now that we've got that, um, I am hoping that we can begin to make the case for this kind of investment. You operate mainly or exclusively in the United States, is that correct? That is correct. Um, Susie's, um, Susie Buffett's focus is almost entirely in Nebraska with her Sherwood, uh, with her foundation's investment. The Buffett Early Childhood Fund is both um, Nebraska and national, but we don't do any international work. And our mutual friend, Joan, keeps working on us on that. <laughs> so I'm sure she's nudging you along. Well, I'm yes. just thinking because the the... You mentioned practice policy research, uh, and the two individuals you specifically referenced—you know, Jack Shonkoff at Harvard and, and Jim Heckman at Chicago—they're the two key individuals that I always think about the neuroscientific arguments and the economic arguments. They're the they're the the pillars, aren't they? In terms of yes. Now, since you have such close contact with these individuals and the research they do, and their fields are really amazing, I'm wondering whether at all. You have individuals or organizations from outside the U.S. who tap you a little bit and say, look, um, could we learn a little bit from you? Could we learn a little bit from the research? I know that each one of these two centers, you know, Jack and, and uh, Jack Shankoff and Jim Heckman, they're very good at communicating globally. But I'm just wondering, is that sort of, do people come up to you from across the border uh, or from Europe or from other countries and say, what are your insights? What are you learning and how can we learn from you? Probably not directly, but through people like Jack mm -hmm. and um, uh, Jim Heckman, more Jack. Uh, in fact, recently, um, we, again, along with several other funders, are funding um, Jack's latest work, which is, um, he's kind of returning to his pediatric um, mm -hmm. uh, grounding, and really wants, they've discovered or um, developed ways to assess stress in infants and toddlers because we know that two children in the exact same environment are not necessarily experiencing that stress in the same way. Uh, there's the genetic protective factor as well as other things. So what Jack is trying to do is get even more precise about which children need what as opposed to saying, well, they're all poor and therefore they need the same thing. Um, but really, or they're all dealing with, you know, violent communities, so they need the same thing. But really saying, uh, trying to learn more through these early assessments about what kind of practices we should have for which children. So because Jack has a couple of funders from other countries that are in this project, mm -hmm. they're now, we hosted a meeting here, Susie hosted a meeting here. Uh, in Omaha with all of them. So we're beginning to have those connections, even though we're not directly uh, responding to inquiries or certainly not at this point making any investments. Yeah. And you mentioned to me uh, before we started the call that you're working in a, a sort of 
funder collaborative, uh, looking at early childhood development and, and workforce, uh, sort of tenure project. And tell me a little bit about this collaborative and, uh, and what you're working on. Yes, uh, there's about eight foundations here in uh, the United States that have come together recognizing the most critical element of a quality early childhood program are the adults in that program, both the parents and family members, as well as the, the teachers and the caretakers. So um, it's not much of a clear unified system here Mm -hmm. in terms of early childhood. So what this group really has set out to do is how could we get to an agreed upon set of competencies for teachers in early childhood settings, regardless of the setting, whether it's a community-based child care program or a pre-K program run by the schools? How can we get an agreed upon set of competencies? And then how do those competencies become the base of regulation and credentialing in every state? And how does post-secondary education get driven by those uh, competencies? How do we find alternative pathways to get BA degrees so we maintain the existing diversity uh, in the early childhood field? Um, And most (laughs) most big this challenge probably is, how do we get pay parity? How do we get the levels of compensation that are fitting for professionals that are spending four to six years uh, learning the body of knowledge that's really going to enable them to be an effective um, um, teacher with young children, particularly those that are facing a lot of risk factors. So this started out as sort of a three-year project, and we realized just learning how to pool our dollars together takes time across eight foundations. Um, But now that we've got that together, we are on our way to doing landscape analysis, um, what states are most ready to do this, what are the readiness factors. Um, We're building on what is being done through the Power to Profession initiative led by the National Association for the Education of Young Children. So, uh, we know this is probably a 10-year project, and now we want to do um, pilots in about three to five states to um, do innovative strategies in post-secondary uh, preparation that will be focused on the demonstration of competencies and gives access to um, everyone so that we maintain a diversity in our workforce. So lots of excitement and energy. It's going to take some time, but I think that's a are really, I'm excited about a critical body of work. And the only way we're going to be able to take on something this big, in my opinion, is through a collaborative like we've put in place. How, how did you start off this collaborative? How, how do these eight foundations come together? Um, oh. and, and, uh, and even, I mean, obviously put aside figuring out how, how to work together, but even the initial introduction of who's who and how did you guys come around and, and um, set this up? There are four or five uh, foundations that have been working together for the last 10 to 15 years. Much of it started with the educare work, but then also with the policy uh, organizations. So uh, one of those was the Packard Foundation. Mm -hmm. And the Packard Foundation, along with the Pritzker Foundation out of Chicago, J.B. Pritzker Foundation, um, they pulled this together and said, what's the next big bet in the field of early childhood? So... That group grew from about kind of the original family of five or six foundations to about 10 to 12 foundations. Across the next couple of years, we met 
and ended up identifying two areas that multiple foundations were interested in digging deeper on. One was the workforce, and we joined that one. Another one was about the um, connection of pediatric practice to the promotion of um, um, good information and um, quality parenting in the earliest years. So uh, another group focused on that. And uh, I would give uh, credit to the uh, Foundation for Child Development, led by Jacqueline Jones. Um, their whole focus is the workforce, and they've been a dramatic uh, influencer and leader in this collaborative. The other uh, major player has been Heising Simons, and um, those two have been kind of in the lead. But um, there are multiple other foundations that are working on this together. So it, 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 it takes an effort. Um, but it also took, we were, we built on relationships that have been developing across multiple years. We'd been doing things together before, never quite as big as these two big bets. Um, so it's, it's been a great experience, but it does, it does take time and it takes a willingness to participate in the give and take of working with others instead of being totally in charge of mm -hmm. what you invest in. Yeah. Now, the whole collaborative side is very important. Let me ask you, it's, maybe it's a little bit more technical, but do you, uh, when you collaborate with the other foundations, is it a question of doing matched funding and then you each individually do your own impact evaluation and so forth? Or do you pull together your resources, literally pulling them together and have a sort of project manager who is um, who's looking at this uh, from, a, from a single funder's perspective, if, if that makes sense? Yes, um, it's, we do it in both ways. Uh, on the workforce collaborative, that is actually, we are pooling our money. All our money is, goes into a fiscal agent that manages the money. And then we contracted with an organization that actually is what I would call the project manager. And um, so that one actually did, we agreed on a single report to all of the agencies. And what took some time up front, very honestly, was um, people had different requirements about exactly. what needed to be in there. So in a couple of the other uh, collaboratives we are in that are smaller scale, it's more about aligning your funding. You decide that you are all gonna invest in the same thing, but you each do your own grant. But even in those, for the sanity of the single organization that you might all be giving uh, grants to, um, we agree upon a single report, um, the same report that would go to all of us. It takes a little while to make sure certain requirements that foundations may have are included in that that format. But um, aligning with the funding, I would say, is is an easier route to go. Sure. And I suspect in the end, it's just as effective. But that's one, something we'll learn because we'll we'll have a couple of examples of doing it two different ways. Time-wise, um, it was easier. It has been easier to align funding, and that's the way most of our partnership investments have been done. Only in a couple instances have we done um, this pooling of funds, and never to the extent that this one is being done with this collaborative. Right, because the pooling of funds also takes you a little bit out of your comfort zone, I imagine. Right, in terms of you delegating some of these activities that you would normally have in-house. Well, it means that uh, two things. One is it means up front you have eight attorneys um, <laughs> giving giving their opinion on the agreement with the fiscal agent. Right. <laughs> um, and I don't think any of us were prepared for the time that that, that would take. Um, but then it was actually been easier to come up with a, an agreement about a common reporting system 
where the give and take is, is it's a group making decisions, not by yourself. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, we operate by consensus. Uh, I can't think of a circumstances where it has been actually a vote in the majority rules. So far, it's been um, uh, consensus. And sometimes it takes us a while to get there. Mm-hmm. But um, the, um, I firmly believe we end up with a better product when there are multiple perspectives coming in, even if it takes a bit more time. Anyways, I imagine you're fairly aligned with each other from the outset. Otherwise, you wouldn't be having that conversation or setting up this sort of collaborative. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And practically every one of the foundations in this particular, the workforce collaborative, have expertise in this field. They have experience in this field. Jacqueline Jones was in the Department of Education in the Obama administration. Um, I, as I shared with you, has been a practitioner as well as an administrator in early childhood. So we tend to be people who already have, who have depth of experience and expertise. So that also makes us more aligned Mm -hmm. um, in our uh, expectations and our aspirations. Are you at liberty to disclose what sort of funding size we're looking at normally? I mean, what's this look like if somebody's trying to visualize what sort of uh, investment is being pulled together by this collaborative? There's probably 20 to 25 million committed to this right now. Great. And in general, your foundation, the well, the fund, it doesn't take unsolicited applications. Is that correct? It doesn't take unsolicited funding applications. That's exactly right. And we don't have sort of a, an open grant season and taking applications. For the most part, we believe in long-term investments. Mm-hmm. We stay with things that we start. So like the Educare Learning Network, it's been almost 15 years with people like um, Jack's work and Jim's work, with um, the uh, policy investment. So we have a fair amount of our resources are, are committed to the long-term investment and sustainability of this of these bodies of work. Um, and then um, the way we end up identifying other areas uh, is, probably happens two ways. One is relationships. You're at a meeting, you start working with somebody, they're doing something exciting, and you begin to realize you have common interests. And so it happens that way. Uh, Generally speaking, it's more about our assessment. Where do we see the gaps? Where do we see the organizations that can help us address those gaps? Uh, And again, uh, we we, while we do some um, sort of short-term support kinds of things, for the most part, we're investing in major systems change and long-term sustainability of effective programs. Does that mean you have an in-house team of professionals who are out there um, being given direction in terms of this is the thematic area, and then they go landscape, benchmark, uh, and identify good uh, investment opportunities for you? Yeah, we're a small team. There's seven of us. Okay. Uh, and it's a mixed um, team. When we first started, there was two two people that started it and then four for a long time. And it's just been in the last oh, five to eight years that we've added a couple more people. But they're different people. Uh, one person's steeped in practice. Another is very much about uh, philanthropy and its impact on social justice. Another comes from the world of fundraising in a large foundation, um, another from the communication world. For a long time, we have been very much, we all work as a team, and we have different elements of the same um, investment that we uh, work on. More recently, because our work is continuing to expand, 
we are getting more specific about who's doing what and uh, a more strategic planning about where we want to make our investments to have the greatest impact. And that requires, much like you said, um, some landscaping, some analysis of what's going on. I can give you an example there. Uh, One is uh, we have uh, historically never been into the immigration work. But we just can't sit back and watch what's happening at the border in terms of the separation of children from their families Mm -hmm. and their parents. And so we now have one of our team members that's really reaching out across the funder world, who's doing what, talking to people that we know are are doing services uh, in border states, uh, what's their insight. So that's an example of how we see a need and think we ought to be responding to it. And now we're doing our homework about how we can actually have impact greater than sending more blankets or toothbrushes. You know, we want, we want to try and do something important and impactful. And then it's literally just a question of somebody picking up the phone and saying, look, I hear you guys are doing something along these lines. Can we, can we sit down and explore how we can collaborate together? Yeah. And that does happen. Uh, People reach out to us and say, and what part of what's happening too is because of the, these partnerships we have with other funders, we're all now starting to do with each other. Hey, we got a great proposal. We can't we can't support it entirely. Would you like to partner on that? One of the things we did when the uh, Educare Network four years ago is we realized we had brilliance existing within the network, and so we put out money to the schools to do what we called acceleration grants. Two or more Educare schools come together and and develop a new practice or refine one. It could be a research project. The first year, we, we got a good response and had sufficient funds to support it. Second year, we got five times more really good proposals than what we had funding set aside for. So we started, we start marketing it out there to our funders and our funder friends do the same thing with us. Right. And your funding decision-making process, is that a fairly nimble thing? Do you maybe identify something that could come on your radar and you just say, look, we have to move on this quickly. Let's convene the board and just vote and make it happen. Or do you have very structured and, and rigorous cycles? Or I'm, you know, there's no right or wrong, but I'm just curious how you how you operate. We are quite nimble, uh, and I consider that a real luxury as well as an important a big responsibility. Yeah. Um, our board, for the most part, we do not have to take everything to the board, um, and that allows us to respond very quickly. And we are often the ones that can put money up front to get something going while everybody else is going through their processes. So it's it's been a, a valuable niche for us to have that nimbleness and we value we treasure it and uh, want to make sure that we maintain that flexibility um, because you never can predict everything that's going to come along that needs to be done. And yeah. this, this immigration situation is a perfect example of that. Here's a tricky question for you. What does success look like to you in 10 years' time? Well, this drives my team crazy, but I think about the uh, 6 million kids who are living in poverty and don't have access to quality experiences and who are the ones that are most likely to be our high-return kids if we would make the right investments. So I really measure our success and our progress is how close are we getting to that 6 million figure. And that's why policy is so important in our work. Because the only way we'll really get there is if we can get smart, um, comprehensive strategies at both the state and federal level, um, that that's how we're going to get there. 
on a, on a more specific level, like with our educare schools, we have a rigorous evaluation protocol that every school has to participate in. And it's really looking at the quality of the classrooms, the effectiveness of the teacher-child interactions, outcomes for children, parent surveys, staff surveys. We want to know what works because we don't want to just offer a good program for the kids and families in that program. We want to learn things that can be extended to the broader field. So we talk a lot about our educated schools not being a franchise operation. We're not looking to get one on every corner, mm-hmm. but we but we want those to be platforms for change, both in policy, like I talked about earlier, but also in practice. So we're also looking at smaller scale impact. Um, I do the same thing in the state of Nebraska. You know, if we've got 75,000 kids under the age of five that are living in poverty, um, how, where, where are we getting in terms of their access to quality programs? And we still have a ways to go. How do you know what works and what doesn't? I know so many charities and foundations out there who struggle with that, you know, ostensibly very simple question, but it's not. And how do you, how do you do it? What words of wisdom do you have for, for somebody who's struggling with that right now? We look to people who have credibility as researchers uh, and not assume that we, we can do it all by ourselves. So again, with the uh, Educare Learning Network, we ended up, um, our evaluation partner is Frank Porter Graham at the University of North Carolina, long, uh, nationally recognized for their work, particularly in early childhood research. So we, we look to people who are known for doing good research to help us. But I would also say um, the evaluation are based on two things. What kind of impact did we have towards our goals? And two, what did we learn? When when Warren gave his three children funds to start their foundations, he gave them, he wrote a letter and gave them advice. Um, and one piece of advice was um, uh, take risk. Mm-hmm. Invest in things that nobody else will invest in. Um, and because it's when you take risks that you learn and what works and what doesn't work. And um, we've had both. <laughs> so I, um, I, I love having that direction provided for us. He also was the one that said invest for the long haul, which should come as no surprise if anybody has watched how he does his work. <laughs> sure. um, um, but the, it's good guidance for us to realize that it's okay if we can't prove that everything we've done is working. Um, it does put a responsibility on us to keep asking that question and to make adjustments when it's appropriate. And that may mean stop doing things that feel good, but really aren't accomplishing what we wanted to have happen. So I, it's not probably as precise as of an answer that you'd might like to have. It's a great answer. And what I like also is just about the learning piece. It's not just that 80% has worked and 20% hasn't worked, but why and for who and what's the rationale underpinning those percentages, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because that's how we're going to keep moving our, our understanding and our knowledge forward and being more effective in the long run um, is that we have to to learn what doesn't work as much as we do learn what does work. So here we go. As we're, as we're wrapping up today's episode, so I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, we are about encouraging a global audience to be more philanthropic and act sustainably and embrace social entrepreneurship. And I always like to end the show by asking the guest one key takeaway. 
So what, you know, if there is one key takeaway you want the audience to walk away with after listening to today's podcast, what would that be? What's that key salient point that you think would be great for people to remember after they finish today's show? I didn't talk about this, but this is one thing I would say. Do your homework. Don't assume you have the answers. It's not enough to recognize the importance of the early years. You need to recognize who's done what already. Who are the voices who've been doing this? What has been their experience? So do your homework and know what's going on right now. What I've seen in the last few years is sometimes people well-intended dive in and they appear to think that nothing's been done before they arrived. And um, there is a lot that's been done. Um, we lean a lot on people like Joan Lombardi to help guide us because um, she's been doing this work for so long. So do your homework. The other thing, and I have mentioned this several times, really seriously take the time to think about doing things in partnerships with other funders because that's where I think we're going to have the greatest impact. I love your takeaway. I'd like to thank you so very much for joining us in the podcast and shedding so much light and passion on early childhood development and education, the work that you're doing, and also the technical and, and strategic side of the foundation and the collaborative that you have with other truly substantive funding bodies. Um, because I think it's, it's, it's invaluable information, not just for me, but for the listeners, wherever they might be. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure visiting with you all today. No, wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm -hmm.